ID the Future, a podcast about evolution and intelligent design. When your proposal starts having to overcome odds on the order of one in 10 to the billionth power, you know you've got some work to do on it. Hello, I'm Tom Gilson, and today on ID the Future, we are going to hear the second part of a conversation between Rice University synthetic chemist James Tour and Dr. William Dembski, an expert in probability theory and intelligent design, as they talk about probabilities and improbabilities that naturalistic evolution has to overcome in order to be a viable theory. This is the second part of a conversation that originally aired on Dr. Tour's Science and Faith podcast and is used here by his permission. We're going to turn to some questions now from 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 our our YouTube audience, and so uh, so let, let's see if you can ha- handle these, Bill. I, I, you look like you're in shape, so so we'll see if you can handle these. Look- <laughs> <laughs> the physical and the mental that they they went together here. Okay. Yeah, in the protein synthesis, a sequence of nucleotides is read and transcribed, and the sequence is then translated into an amino acid sequence. What chemical explanation exists for the writing of the sequence into the DNA or RNA molecule in the first place? Given the age of our universe, is chance and time sufficient? Well, you know, I think if, if you're just trying to create uh, DNA sequences or protein sequences in some sort of prebiotic conditions, I, I, I think you, you spoke to it essentially. I mean, you know, you, even if you have a chemical supply company, you know, then then it may may help you. But I mean, under realistic prebiotic conditions, these things don't form. I mean, just even getting linear chains where you've got the right uh, chiralities and everything. I mean, it's, it's just very difficult. I mean, and you know, then you can also get side chains. You get the wrong linkages, have interfering cross reactions. So all of that becomes very difficult. So we, let's even just look within cellular context, uh, you know, how do you get a code? I mean, it is a code where you translate from uh, the DNA into protein, you know? And what's remarkable to me is that uh, Shannon, it was in 1948, 49, somewhere in there, that he comes up with this information theory and where you've got the codes. A code is not just sequential information it's going it's a translation as it were from one type of information to another digital information uh and so he was concerned with that along uh electronic communication channels well he comes up with that and in the next decade we find exactly that in the cell and you wonder you know would it would we have even figured out what was going on in the cell if we hadn't had that prior mathematical knowledge of how coding works so so you have this, and it's it just requires an immense amount of machinery for all of this to, to come into play. And there's there's a minimal complexity argument here in the sense that, okay, if this evolved, from what simpler system did it evolve? We have no example of that. You know, you've got the DNA, the protein. Uh, it's got to be constructed with, with some uh, uh, ribosomes. I mean, the enzymes, all of this, it's, it's just one package deal, uh, and there, there's no... Uh, there, there's no account of how you could have had a simpler system that that led to this. So, you know, in terms of, I mean, you know, I have what I call universal probability bounds. I mean, one is, uh, and, it, and 
there's 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 converging lines of evidence for this. It's around 10 and 1 to the 20, uh, 10 to the 120, 10 to the 150. So take the reciprocal of that for the probabilities, 10 to the 120. That's by looking at the total amount of computation that's possible in the universe. Uh, Seth, uh, Seth Lloyd at uh, MIT has, a, I think, a very reliable estimate there. And so you know, in terms of the number of events where you can try to accomplish something by chance, it's very limited in the known physical universe. Well, I mean, you're looking at, when you're looking in the cell with these systems, I mean, just even simplest ribosome, I think, has what, I mean, about 80 protein parts. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's incredible. So, I mean, you know, I'm not even sure you need to say, okay, you know, how many 10 to the 10 to the 10 years is it going to require for something like this to happen by chance? I mean, it is, it is so far out there that, you know, I, uh, you know, I, I'm not sure you even need to go there. You know, I mean, it's uh, it's if, if, you, if you're invoking those sorts of probabilities, you don't have an explanation. Yeah. And, and you know, something that, that's come up recently that people are always saying, well, you know, you, you keep invoking a cell. The cell back then, the original cells were much less complex than the bacteria today, much less complex. So this has now been calculated. Biophysicists calculated it. And I've shown this on my recent video series that you need at least 205 protein coding genes and you need a litany of certain functions that are going to be operable. And that's provided that you had all 20 amino acids that could come to you exogenously because you don't have the machinery to make them. So it's not that far less complex than what we have today. The, the least complex system that we have today, the simplest cells that, that we have today have about 500 protein coding genes. So it's not that far less complex, the computationally least complex system that you could possibly model. So, yeah. so this whole argument that things were just much simpler and then evolution took over. No, it wasn't much simpler. So these things are just getting uh, uh, tossed away. No, if you're looking at cells of the sort that we currently have, and the only, not just that, that we currently have, but the only type we know, you know, uh, I mean, these uh, minimal complexity argument of the sort that you're making, I mean, that's, that holds, I mean, it's still, you know, yes, the, you know, they'll say the cell was so much simpler back then, but even at its simplest, it's still immensely complex. So you, what you have to do is then argue for some sort of, radically simpler, but also different type of life form that could have evolved into the current life form. Okay, what was that? You know, and, and there's just total silence. They have no, they're, they're, there's, there's no understanding except, uh, well, we may have had a re replicator. Once we got the replicator, you know, all that natural selection, you know, it's, it's just a done deal that we're going to get something like, like us. And, you know, it's, it, it's just pure mystery mongering. Okay, let's go to another question. Can you explain the law of small probability and its relation to the total number of actions available and its relevance to the implausibility of abiogenesis slash evolution? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, law of small probability, I think I put it in those terms in uh, the design inference. I'm not sure I put it in quite those terms anymore. But I mean, the, the basic idea is that if, there are things which are within the reach of chance and outside the reach of chance. And it depends on how many opportunities there are for something to happen. So if I flip a coin and I get 10 heads in a row, 
you know, given if, uh, you know, it's one in about a thousand improbability for that to happen, that could happen by chance. Now, it could also happen that, you know, I approach you and I say, hey, I just flipped 10 heads in a row. But it turns out I'd been spending about an hour before that flipping a coin. I waited until I got those 10 heads in a row. You know, in a sense, then I, I hid all those failed coin flips. But what if I instead said, well, you know, I just was flipping a coin. I got 100 heads in a row. Well, if every human being in the history of the earth did nothing but flip coins, you still wouldn't expect to see 100 heads in a row. So that's, that's the idea. How many opportunities do you have? And the reason I was going to these law of small probability was questioning then, well, what is, what is a small probability on the scale of the known physical universe? You've got about 10 to the 80 elementary particles. You have so much time. There's a certain rate at which uh, matter can change states. And when you factor all that in, I came up with what I regarded as a conservative estimate of 10 to the 150. That, so that becomes a universal probability bound at the scale of the known physical universe. And the thing is, I mean, you get those numbers very easily. You know, with, with any, an average protein is going to be over 100 amino acids. And even when you allow for substitutions, you know, it's, you're going to get, still, it's going to be very improbable. So these numbers apply very readily uh, to the biological context. But, you know, where, where this is going, though, in cosmology is that, well, you know, 10 to the 150 just isn't enough. So let's get multiple universes. And we vastly inflate the, the probabilistic resources. And then suddenly we, we don't, you know, we, we can get a lot of things by chance that we couldn't before. But the problem is when you allow yourself that move, then you also have to explain a lot of things away that you wouldn't otherwise. So it seems like I'm a somewhat intelligent person who's communicating language and meaningful communication relative to information and biology, but maybe there's really nothing going on in my head. It's just that there are these random sounds that are coming out of my uh, mouth, and it just happens to be that they correspond to something that seems meaningful. So really, I'm just this kind of random automaton, uh, and there's some possible world where this is the case, where there's no mental life, but I just happen to be speaking this way. And you're going to have to accept that if you're going to go with this multi-universe where anything that's possible is actually realized in some, some place. Okay. If proteins are created by protein synthesis, but proteins are necessary to, to kick okay. the process of protein synthesis in the first place, is there an explanation for what created those very first proteins? Yeah. Well, you're going to, it, it seems, I mean, there's this chicken and egg problem. You need the yeah. DNA to get the protein, but then you need the proteins, especially the enzymes and things to, to work with the DNA. And so you have this whole integrated system. I mean, that, that, that's a problem with design generally. I mean, when you, when people build machines, I mean, they're integrated holes. I mean, so where everything has to work together. And if you allow yourself vast improbabilities, you know, then you can say, well, you know, this cell materialized by chance with this whole machinery and there it is. And so we're just going to accept it. But most people, you know, are going to say that's not an adequate explanation. So then you've got to either go with some sort of design hypothesis, it seems to me, or you have to tell an evolutionary story, which is then from simplicity to complexity. And you have this gradual buildup where structures and functions co-evolve. And then one and then there's never a big jump in improbability at any one point. And I, I should point out, I mean, the evolutionists 
when they're not bashing intelligent design people, they are sensitive to these improbability jumps. I mean, for instance, if they could get some mechanism for getting homochirality, getting all the, the L amino acids, you know, they would, they would tout that and say, see, there was never really a problem there because now we can get that with high probability. So that's what they're always shooting for. They do want a gradual path where no step along the way is too improbable, but they're never able to identify it. You know, so it's, it's, it becomes an article of faith, especially at the prebiotic level. Right. And, and what we know now is that, that amino acids don't just hook together. So if you say the amino acids just randomly hook together, that's how you got your first protein. Amino acids don't hook together. So it may be that, that Miller-Urey was a red herring, that, that you'd have to have other ways to get these together. And there's recent publications of some suggestions on that, but again, with, with no chance for homochirality for anything. But just amino acids, there's vitorionic and they don't just hook together. And we've been beating our heads trying to say, well, how do these things hook together? If you could get the amino acids and let's say asparagine can crystallize and you can get a crystal of just the L and others could crystallize on it. And let's, so, so I'll give you, I'll give you all the homochiral amino acids. Now, what are you going to do? You can't get them to polymerize. They don't polymerize. And then the other thing is you have to be able to block the active side chain. Those compete in the polymerization. So we don't know how to polymerize those. So even if you had those, it doesn't solve the problem. That's why I'll give them everything. I'll give them the DNA, the RNA, the proteins, the, the, the lipids, and say, now just assemble a cell. You're trying to solve all this? I'll give it to you. Can you now assemble a cell? And they're like, no, I can't do that. It's a very hard problem. So to, to suggest that uh, all you need is, is these components and a million years, no, it doesn't happen. What happens in those million years? You got to be able to describe that. All right, here's another question for you. Is it possible to arrange a single equation that can illustrate the collective improbabilities of an accidental development of a single cell? You know, it seems to me that the, the problem is so immense. We don't even know what all the sources of information are inside the cell. You know, I mean, there's, there, uh, you know, it's, it's often said that DNA contains the body plan for the cell. It doesn't. I mean, there, you can make changes in cell walls, which then get transmitted, uh, you know, hereditarily down the line. So uh, the sources of information are huge. So my approach has always been, you know, if a subsystem is designed, then the whole system is designed. And so try to look at manageable subsystems where you can actually do this probability calculations. The strongest research in that regard that I know is by Doug Axe, where he will look at the evolution of certain uh, proteins and just what are the improbabilities involved and the obstacles to that. So that's, uh, you know, so, you know, I mean, I've seen numbers, Fred Hoyle, I think one in 10 to the 40,000, you know, the, these numbers, I'm just not sure what sense to make of them. But if I can assign some, some heavy duty improbabilities to a certain processes that I can understand, such as uh, with Doug Axe, I think it was a beta-lactamase enzyme that was uh, conducive towards uh, antibiotic resistance and how do you evolve that from a uh, protein that does not have that functionality. Uh, and he was getting, I think, improbabilities on the order of 10 to the minus 70 
that to me is very compelling. And so you just keep whittling away and showing that you have these, these huge improbabilities, these hurdles that you have to overcome on well-defined systems. And it seems to me that's, that's where you want to work. But how do you get a grand number for a cell as a whole? I'm not sure how to do that because it seems that the probabilities are just so, uh, or the, the, the improbabilities are so immense, if you will. Right. And it's, as you said at the beginning, we don't even understand all the complexities. One of the things that I've been showing people recently is Leventhal 2.0 paradox. Just the protein-protein interactions in a simple yeast cell with its 3,000 or so proteins has, has just the non-covalent interaction arrangement is 10 to the 79 billion. How do you like that for a number? All right. So, so, so the, and, and, and the non-covalent arrangements are turning out to be highly important because you get electrostatic potentials which pass information down these channels of non-covalent arrangements. When you get numbers like that, you understand this better than I do. That number is, is just, just crazy, crazy big, and you don't know what to do with it. And that's just the protein-protein interactions in a yeast cell. That's not the protein-DNA actions and interactions and, and all of that. So... And, yeah. and that's why you can't dehydrate a cell totally where you take out the structural waters and then rehydrate it and ever get it to work because you've lost those non-covalent interactions that are not recoverable. That's the problem. Interesting. So in recent years, it's been discovered that the genetic code is actually multiplexed and being quaternary gives greater potential than binary. Can you explain the significance of this? Uh, I think probably you'd be in a better position, but it seems that, uh, you know, when, with, with DNA, I mean, you can read it. I mean, there are different reading frames. You can uh, yeah. There's skip sequences, go yeah. backwards, forward. Uh, you know, this, this was, uh, I mean, in a sense, what we have it's in the DNA, it seems, is digital data embedding technologies and steganography where you, you've got just multiple layers of information that are there. So uh, to me, that, that speaks of design. I mean, there's an efficiency, you know, it's almost like a crossword puzzle, as it were, embedded in there. And there's, there's no reason, it seems to me, for natural selection to create that sort of sophistication. The word had always been, you know, there's junk DNA. It's just a lot of DNA is just carried along because it's just easier to keep replicating it rather than just uh, excising it by some sort of stringent editing features. And instead, you find these digital data embedding technologies. So it's uh, to me that's that's further evidence of design and against the materialistic account of evolution. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. I'm somewhat familiar with Dr. Dembski's work. Heard him speak once outside of Philadelphia, but only minimally. Dr. Dembski, what is the most frequent argument against your views, and how do you answer that? Uh, I mean, there's, you know, I think a lot of people at some level uh, will resist intelligent design because of an argument from evil. I mean, it was the idea that there's bad design, that uh, evil design, parasitism, things like that. And so they don't even want to go there because, I mean, the, the, the rationale is, well, you know, you're a Christian, right? The designer is this Christian God. The Christian God is supposed to be good. And yet here we see all these malevolent designs Therefore, you've got to be wrong. You know? So I think that's, that's a way of just short-circuiting things. Um, you know, in terms of 
the information arguments, I don't think they've got a response to, I mean, the, the conservation of information, I mean, these are mathematical theorems. You know, so they, they, they hold up, uh, they, they certainly apply to in the computational context, uh, but I think uh, people will say, well, it's just that uh, in biology, something else must be going on. But, you know, what it is, you know, they, they, don't, they don't articulate it. So uh, I think those, those are probably the two main lines of, uh, of concern, that somehow these information arguments really aren't relevant in biology. But if, if they're not relevant, then in what sense do, uh, do the evolutionists have a scientific theory? Because it, it does seem, in fact, that this is, this is the only way to make sense in a scientific way of evolutionary processes in terms of uh, information exchange, transmission, storage. So um, anyway, those, those are probably the two main lines. Okay, we're gonna wrap up with this one question. Your website says that you, quote, repudiate none of your work on intelligent design and may at some point return to working in the area, unquote. Can you elaborate why your website specifically states that you do not repudiate your work? Also, are your beliefs more in line with theistic evolution, intelligent design, or maybe both? Yeah, I mean, to the last point, uh, I'm not a big believer in common descent or universal common ancestry, just because I don't think the evidence supports it. So it's, uh, you know, when I look, especially taxonomic levels, phyla, orders, classes, it just doesn't seem to me that the, the fossil evidence, the DNA evidence supports that. So that, you know, uh, in terms of why that line is there that I repute none of, none of my work on intelligent design, there's a context, and that's in 2016, uh, I felt that I had done some of my best work in this area, and I, I think I, I felt I was getting stale, and so I uh, announced my retirement from intelligent design. Well, I'm back at least in part, you know, so it's uh, it became a semi-retirement, and you know, I think people when I announced my retirement, they thought, well, you know, he's, uh, he, he must have lost confidence in the work that he did. And that, that's not the case, you know? And so they, people were trying to put uh, words in my mouth on this. And I think the work was good. It was solid. Uh, but, you know, I'd been at it for 25 years and I needed a break. And, and so I, I've got, I still have my fingers in it, but I have a day job. I mean, I'm an entrepreneur. I have websites, build educational technologies. And so I just don't get to spend a lot of time on this anymore. Mm -hmm. All right, Bill, thank you so much. Thank you for what you've, uh, you've brought to us and explained to us. I appreciate it. And uh, this has been a good exchange. I, I really wanted to bring an expert in information onto the program and, and help us out here and, and to un be able to understand all of this. I think it's probably been, I don't know, 15 years since we had dinner together at my home. And uh, a lovely family. It was so, so nice to visit with you, Ben. I think it was in 2007. So it's, okay. uh, yeah, so it's so good to see you and wish you all the best. That was Dr. James Tour with Dr. William Dembski speaking about probabilities and improbabilities faced by evolution. Stay tuned to ID the Future for more stimulating conversation on the topics of intelligent design and evolution. And do us a favor, please, and spread the word. Let your friends know about ID the Future. And give this podcast a five-star rating on your podcast app of choice. Until next time, I'm Tom Gilson.
Thank you for listening. Visit us at idthefuture.com and intelligentdesign.org. This program is Copyright Discovery Institute and recorded by its Center for Science and Culture.